You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. morning uh, marks almost the halfway point. I think technically it'll be next week, but we're almost to the halfway point of our study through Ecclesiastes that we have called Chasing the Wind. And if you haven't been here, <clears throat> we have seen over and over and over again, the teacher of this book highlight the futility of chasing anything in life apart from our relationship with God. And so in this, he comes back over and over again to some of the same themes. And the truth is, the repetitive nature of his writing provides us with a necessary reminder. It reminds us that we're all inclined, every single one of us, to chase things in life that we mistakenly believe will satisfy the deepest longings that God has hardwired into our souls. And believe it or not, this makes me think about our dog, Wicket. Um, Since Wicket was a puppy, he has been chasing three things. He has been chasing squirrels, birds, and cats. That is his unholy trinity of arch enemies. He hates these three things so much. Now, when we lived in Chicago and North Carolina, it was predominantly squirrels. Um, He tore through uh, one of the screens on the front window of our house in in Chicago, trying to get to these squirrels that would sit out there and taunt him. Uh, It did seem pretty maniacal. I'm going to defend him and say these squirrels knew exactly what they were doing. It was dark. Now, when we moved to North Carolina, they would sprint on the top of our fence, and he would just go mad back and forth on this fence. And then as we've moved here, it's this same tabby cat that stalks our fence almost every single day. And you would think, based on the intensity with which that Wicket chases this cat, it was a matter of national security. He loses his mind every time he sees this cat. Now, there are two reasons why this reminds me, believe it or not truly, of Ecclesiastes. The first is, the likelihood that Wicket ever catches one of the things that he chases is next to nothing, okay? Just next to nothing. He might as well be trying, in that sense, to catch the wind. And secondly, Tammy and I are always like, what would he do if he did catch one? I, I, like, he is such a coward, I don't even think he would, he'd be horrified And so catching one of these things that he has spent his life chasing will not deliver what he expects. And that is the exact message of Ecclesiastes. See, the message of this book is the simple reminder that God alone gives life meaning. In fact, if like me, you have like a hard copy Bible at the beginning of the book, that's what I've written across the top. And I do that with every book in the Bible so that I have this kind of sort of, this is what the message of this book is. And the message of Ecclesiastes is that simple. God alone gives life meaning. And because of this, anything that we chase apart from him will inevitably disappoint us. And in our text this morning, the teacher comes back to an empty pursuit that he has already referenced before, the pursuit of wealth as a means of ultimate meaning. Now, for some historical context in this, it's helpful to know that in the third century BC, when this book was written, a Greek royal house ruled the region that this book was being written in, and many Jews desperately wanted to participate in the highly aggressive and highly lucrative trading economy that had been developed by them. And so there was money to be made, 
and they wanted to get in on it. But just like now, there was tremendous danger in trying to build one's life on the security of wealth. And so the teacher's goal in these verses was to warn Israel, and this morning would be to warn us, of the liabilities of seeking meaning in wealth and to instead encourage them and encourage us to enjoy the daily gifts of life that have been afforded to us by God. And so we can summarize his message this morning like this. Chasing wealth is a tragic trade for enjoying God's daily gifts. Chasing wealth is a tragic trade for enjoying God's daily gifts. Now, in order to convey this idea, the teacher is going to use, so we're going to cover a good chunk of verses this morning, and one thing that you'll notice is that the teacher uses something called a chiasmus. Now, I know this is nerdy, but it's important for you to understand this. Uh, A chiasmus is a rhetorical device in which the order of words in one phrase or clause is reversed in a parallel structure in a subsequent phrase or clause. Now, if you're a visual person, that sentence probably means nothing to you. So let me give you a very famous example from John F. Kennedy's 1961 inaugural address. This is a chiasmus. You'll remember this, I bet. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Almost the exact same words, just in reversed order. That's a chiasmus. And the teacher uses this exact same device in our verses today. Now, typically, I try very hard to spare you this degree of nerddom in my teaching. But this morning, it impacts the way that we're gonna sit with these verses, and so I thought it was important for you to understand why because we're going to jump around a little bit and place, when he talks about the same two things in two different places, we're going to place them side by side this morning for the sake of clarity. So we're going to, again, jump around a little bit. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, we're going to start in verse 8 together this morning and go all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And I want to call this message choosing worship over wealth. Choosing worship over wealth. And overall, the teacher is going to make three points this morning. The first of which is this. Number one, wealth will never satisfy. Wealth will never satisfy. So look with me, beginning in chapter five, verse eight, he says this, if you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another official, and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Now, he starts by telling them and telling us um, that while uh, oppression of the poor is always tragic, it should never really be super shocking to us because we live in a broken world. And when you live in a broken world where humanity refuses to surrender to the reign of God, those in a position of power and means have a tendency to exploit and oppress those who have less power and less means than they do. So the teacher says, this is commonly the law in a broken land, so don't be surprised or astonished by it. Look at verse 10. He says, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the one, ones who consume them multiply. When then is the profit to the owner? What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. 
So the message of the teacher here echoes the words of another great observational theologian. Um, You've heard of him. It's the notorious B.I.G. See, the teacher is essentially saying, mo money, mo problems, okay? To summarize it, in a more modern nomenclature, that's what he's saying. Now, joking aside, I do want you to, to pay attention to this. Remember, in verse 10, he does not say the one who has silver is never satisfied with silver. And he doesn't say the one, that whoever has wealth is never satisfied with income. The problem is not the possession of wealth. The problem is the love of it. That's what he says. See, whatever you love your life inevitably orbits around. What you love becomes the central driver of all that you do. It dictates your every decision. In essence, it is what you worship. And so your life is spent in service to the acquisition of more. And now as we skip over to chapter six for a second, the teacher uses a proverb to highlight a major problem with spending life in service to the acquisition of more. So look at chapter six, beginning in verse seven. He says, all of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. So what he's saying is a major problem with loving money is that it's a hunger that can't truly be satisfied. If your life is spent in service to the acquisition of more, you are never satisfied because there's always more. So just think about that. Like imagine that I gave each of you $1,000. Now, to be clear, that's not happening. Okay? I cannot overstress what an imaginary exercise this is. But imagine for a second, I gave you $1,000. Now, my guess is you'd be super pumped, right? Because who doesn't want $1,000? But here's the thing. You know what's better than $1,000? $2,000. I mean, think about it. You can do twice as much with $2,000. But you know what's better than $2,000? is $10,000. So you see how that works? Like there's just always more. No matter how much you have, there is always going to be more to possess. It can't satisfy. Now, here's the thing that I think is so challenging about this subject for us, living in the culture and the country that we live in. Anytime the subject of wealth and money comes up in the Bible, it's almost always problematic for us because the same heart that plagues the rich can plague the poor. Most of us listening do not think of ourselves as wealthy, right? If we were to sit in a circle and go, tell, like, be honest with me, do you, do you consider yourself rich and wealthy? Most of us are going to say no. I would say no. But that's because when it comes to wealth in our culture, we are conditioned to compare up rather than down. Meaning, we compare ourselves to, like, millionaires and billionaires. And then we think, well, they're rich, That's who really is in danger of everything the teacher's talking about here. It's certainly not me. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I am not a wealthy person. But the truth is, the amount of wealth is almost inconsequential. 
Like, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've known some people in my life that were very wealthy and who were also incredibly generous and open-handed with their wealth. And I've also known some people that barely had anything by way of comparison, and they were miserable, stingy misers. And so at very least, the issue here is not just wealth. It is the heart. To live your life spent in service to the constant acquisition of more is to guarantee you will never be satisfied. Why? Because wealth will never satisfy. Now the second lesson we're meant to learn is this. Failing to enjoy daily life is tragic. Failing to enjoy daily life is tragic. Look at chapter five, verse 13. He says, there is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. Now, I want you to notice that the teacher goes one step further here to actually label the experience of one who lives life in endless pursuit of wealth. He calls it a sickening tragedy. And one reason that he does so is the fragility of wealth, meaning that whatever is gained is easily lost. Look at verse 14. He says that wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Now, he paints this familiar picture for us of wealth that is immediately lost in a bad venture. Then he has children who are born and there's nothing to provide for them. So he's painting a picture here of the fragility of wealth, how quickly it can be lost. And this makes me think about, and some of you may remember this, there was a string of suicides amongst formerly wealthy individuals after the economic crisis of 2008. If you remember that time, many, many people lost an immense amount of money. For instance, the CFO of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. The CEO of Sheldon Good shot himself in the head while sitting in his Jaguar. A French money manager lost $1.4 billion of his client's money and slit his wrists in his Madison Avenue office. A senior executive at HSBC Bank hanged himself in his wardrobe. When an executive at the investment bank, Bear Stearns, learned that he was not going to be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase after they purchased the company, he took an overdose and he jumped off his 29th floor office building. He couldn't handle the loss of what he loved, which was true for each and every one of those people. They could not handle the loss of what they loved. Loving wealth is a tragedy because Wealth is so fragile. And that's not all. Look at chapter six, verse one. He says, here is a tragedy I've observed under the sun. It's related. It weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years no matter how long he lives, if he, does, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility and he goes in darkness 
and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. So here he's highlighting how uh, loving wealth is also a tragedy because it's temporary. Even if wealth isn't lost in our lifetime, it is lost in our death. And so you can spend your entire life in pursuit of something, but it's always just temporary, meaning you don't get to take that with you. And this is why the teacher can compare the fate of someone who loves and worships wealth to the tragedy of a stillborn baby. He's saying they both have the same fate. They die and they take nothing with them. And so the rich take the same thing with them to the grave as the poor, absolutely nothing. And all of that sounds like very, very bad news, but the good news is there is a better way to live than chasing endless wealth, which brings us to the teacher's final point, which is this. God invites us to enjoy daily gifts. God invites us to enjoy daily gifts. Look back at chapter five, verse 18. He says, here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed them to enjoy them, take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. So notice that whereas the teacher deems chasing wealth for ultimate meaning a tragedy, he also says the choice to enjoy what God gives us is good. And so this means that rather than live as a slave to the unsatisfying, fragile, and temporary nature of wealth, God invites us to daily gratitude. He invites us to contentment and enjoyment regardless of what we possess. And this enjoyment is afforded equally to the rich and to the poor. And that is the best news. We can enjoy God's daily gifts regardless of whether or not we possess whatever we deem as wealth, regardless of whether or not we find ourselves in what feels like a good season of consolation or a difficult season of desolation. We can learn to enjoy God's many gifts on a daily basis. But as everything we've talked about through this series, it demands intention. And so I wanna close our time with a simple practice that I was thinking through this way, a simple practice for enjoying God's daily gifts. It takes intention. We have to be mindful about it. How can we actually cultivate and nurture a sense of enjoyment in the many gifts that God gives us on a daily basis, all right? So three simple things. Here's number one. Number one is savor the small things. Savor the small things. Life is filled with small gifts. Just think with me for a second. Think about things like the warm sun or a cool breeze on your face. Those are small gifts. A beautiful sunrise or sunset. The sound of a loved one's laughter. A delicious meal or drink. A hot shower, which might not sound like much to you until your hot water heater goes out. And then you're like, no, that's a big gift to be able to have a hot shower a good workout, the presence of a friend, 
a great book, a comfortable chair, a warm bed, a great movie. There are endless examples of small gifts each day. The problem is we're often, we often move through life at such a pace that we just don't notice these things or we don't pay attention to them. And so instead of that, let's look for them and when we find them, do what we can to truly savor them, meaning that we really experience them, that we take them in. Like I remember when, and if you moved here from out of state, then you remember what this is like. When you first moved to Salt Lake City, you walk out of any building, any store, your house, anything, and you're just like, like these mountains are still here. These things are stunning. They're unbelievable. And then after you've lived here for a year, you're like, people come, I, like I meet people who move here from out of state, and they're like, it's so beautiful here. And I'm like, is it? Because <laughs> you just like, you just start to take it for granted because you see it all of the time. And so rather than, than do that in our lives, we can learn to savor these small things. And that's not all. After we learn to acknowledge and to savor these small things, secondly, we can receive them from God. Receive them from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So rather than experience a small gift and think, well, that was lucky, imagine the impact of savoring all these small gifts and instead learning to attribute each and every one to God. Every time, every good little gift is from the hand of God, given to us because he loves us and he wants us to actually taste and see his goodness every day. So every time you find yourself in an opportunity to, to savor some small thing, say to yourself, this is a gift from God. This is a gift from God. And then finally, we round out this circle by giving him our praise by giving him our praise. Now, I am increasingly convinced that one of the generational shifts that is taking place in our culture right now is an, is an increase of entitlement and thus a decrease of gratitude. And I, we see it on so many different fronts, but entitlement is the enemy of gratitude because there's just simply no reason to be grateful for what we deserve. Like, let's say you got paid on Friday. I'd bet a pretty large sum of money that you didn't go to your boss and say, hey, I just, thanks so much for the paycheck. <laughs> you didn't do that because you earned it. Nobody did you any favors. You deserve to be paid for the work that you did. That's, a, that's entitled, like we, we are entitled to that. But when we live with a sense of entitlement at all times, it destroys our, our ability to be grateful for the things that we don't earn and deserve. And these little gifts from God, they're not things that we earn. They are gifts of God's grace, which is why it is so important that we be so diligent to watch for any sort of religious tendency that creeps into our heart where we believe we have earned things from God. Everything God gives us is grace. And so it isn't enough to savor small things and then receive them from God. We close out this enjoyment loop by actually expressing our thanks and giving him praise. Psalm 100 verse four says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. So just think about this. Like, like let's say you step outside of your 
house tomorrow morning or your apartment, wherever you live, to a beautiful sunrise. Some of you are like, I've never seen a sunrise. I don't anticipate ever waking up early enough to see a sunrise. So regardless, you see something beautiful. Take a moment and really enjoy that. Acknowledge and enjoy its beauty. Then say to yourself, man, this is a gift from God. And then close that loop by just saying a very brief prayer of thanks. Lord, thank you for loving me enough to give me this beautiful moment. Now notice, some of the spiritual practices that we talk about require us to really create margin and space in our lives to do them. They take time. It takes sacrifice. This takes no extra time. This takes, you don't have to like carve out an hour to do this every day. This is something that we learn to do on the go. It isn't hard and it doesn't take us long. But I want you to just imagine for a second the accumulative effect of doing this over and over and over every single day. There is zero chance you aren't happier. Zero. There is zero chance that you don't experience more calm. There is zero chance that you aren't more aware of God's presence in your life. I'm not saying that life won't be hard and painful and difficult and that stuff's like hardwired into a broken world. That's going to be a part of it. But we will move through those things with a deeper sense of God's good presence with us. And the reason for this is that this is a powerful practice of worship. Every single time that we direct gratitude or praise to God, we are offering him our worship. And that's what we were designed to do. So, chasing wealth is simply a tragic trade for enjoying God's daily gifts. So instead, let's learn to enjoy all that he gives us and to give him the worship that he deserves. Can I pray for us? Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are good to us in big ways, and countless small ways. And Lord, I just pray again that you would both forgive us and help us to not seek ultimate meaning and value and worth and satisfaction in anything other than you. Lord, help us to seek that in you and help us to enjoy all of these other things as from you, but not to make them our ultimate pursuit. And instead, Lord, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see the many displays of grace that you show us every day. The many ways in which you are saying to us, I love you, I see you, I delight in you, you are mine. Help us to see those things and to savor those things and help us to receive them as from your hand to us. And I pray that you would teach us, Lord, to express gratitude and praise to you. And in so doing, Lord, I pray that we would learn more and more to enjoy you in the good times and in the bad, when life feels amazing, and when it feels very, very hard. I pray that in all of these seasons in between, that we would be able to learn to truly enjoy you as our good God who is always with us. We love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to